songs, know that the Lord is God. It is he who has made us and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise, and give thanks to him and praise his name, for the Lord is good. His love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. That's an encouragement to me. And uh, if you have kids or grandkids, that God's faithfulness will reach far beyond our generation to the next generations, and we can count on that. Let's pray together this morning. Lord, thank you for the privilege we have to worship you this morning. Lord, I thank you for every person that is here. Lord, we all come through those doors with uh, stuff in our life. And Lord, uh, we thank you that we can come and we can worship you and be encouraged. And Lord, I pray for many that are here that have some heavy burdens on their hearts. Lord, I pray that you would encourage them today through your word and through the encouragement of one another. Lord, I thank you for our missionaries of the month, Drew and Christine Van Team, who are serving you in Edinburgh, Scotland. Thank you that we can be a part of... Uh, their lives and their ministry through prayer and financial support. And thank you that through them we can send the light to Edinburgh, Scotland. So would you bless Drew and Christine Van Team as they continue to minister. Now, Lord, open up our hearts to your word this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as you know, we've been looking through the book of Acts, and there are probably have about five or six more messages, and um, my hope is that we're going to take this series and finish the book of Acts um, right before uh, Easter this year, Resurrection Celebration Day, which is a little earlier than normal. It's March 31st. So uh, we're going to, we're in Paul's third missionary journey, and so we've been journeying with, with Paul. And if you were here last week, uh, Paul was in Ephesus, and I had this great video that I forgot to give to Larissa to show, and I think we have it this morning. So we're going to travel to Ephesus for five minutes uh, video. It'll give you some insight into exactly where the events that we're going to look at in Acts chapter 19 took place. So let's look at this video. It's entitled Uproar in Ephesus. In the first century AD, Ephesus would have been capital of the Roman province of Asia and would have been a major bustling commercial center, with some saying it was the fourth largest city in the empire after Rome, Alexandria, and Antioch. Though today the city lies five miles inland, back then it was a coastal city and would have had a crowded harbor full of ships. The streets would have thronged with people from many different countries and being a key commercial center meant it was a promising ground for missionary work. While Apollos was preaching in Corinth, Paul fulfilled his promise to return here to Ephesus and preach the gospel here on his third missionary journey. During this stop in Ephesus, Paul met some disciples and asked them if they had received the Holy Ghost, to which they responded they had never even heard of the Holy Ghost. He asked which baptism they had, and they said they had John's baptism. He then taught them about the Holy Spirit and baptized them again. This is one of the few accounts in the Bible of someone getting rebaptized and lays a biblical precedent that when new truths are learned that are significant and life-changing, that rebaptism can be appropriate. 
After this, Paul began, as was his custom, preaching in the synagogue. But when opposition arose, he left and went to the school of Tyrannus and continued there for two years. He did not just teach and preach here in Ephesus, but the Bible says in Acts chapter 19 that there was manifestations of supernatural power as people were healed of certain diseases and evil spirits were cast out. This display of power was more powerful than anything the inhabitants of the city had seen, especially those who worshipped the dominant goddess of the city, Diana. Many people were converted and the Bible records that the books of those who used to practice magic were collected and burned, totaling 50,000 pieces of silver worth. Large numbers were converting and it was causing concern and after three years of ministry from 54 to 57 AD, it would reach a climax. In this city was a great temple to the goddess Diana. Being a Greco-Roman city meant it had both cultures present. Diana was her Roman name and Artemis was her Greek name. And in the city there were some, notably Demetrius, who made quite the business selling silver replicas of Diana. Accusing Paul of damaging his business and the popularity of the Temple of Diana, he roused up the masses against him. Gathering here in this theatre which had seating for 24,000 people, they dragged Gaius and Aristarchus before the crowd as they couldn't find Paul. Paul was the one they wanted though and when he heard about the commotion, he wanted to come to defend the truth. But his friends prevented him from going. After chanting, Great is Diana of the Ephesians, for two hours, they finally quieted down. The city clerk was able to calm down the crowd and the masses dispersed. But after this episode, Paul felt it best to leave the city. His missionary endeavors were not over. But after this, he would not return here to this city. He had worked tirelessly, teaching in public and going from house to house. He had battled on through opposition valiantly. He would later write a letter to the church here in Ephesus, the book of Ephesians, from his prison house in Rome. Paul did not choose easy places to go and evangelize. This city of Ephesus was a hotbed of paganism and commercial activity. Yet Paul chose this as one of the places he spent three years. It could be argued today that some people choose easy places to go on mission trips or evangelize, but Paul did not. If today you live in one of the major cities of the world, like London, New York, San Francisco, Sydney, Manila, or Tokyo, then take courage from the ministry of Paul and know that even though our culture is against the dominant culture that we live in, we can take heart and know that God will be with us in the work that we do. Well, that gives you a good overview of uh, what we're going to look at this morning. Um, he, he did leave Manchester out of one of the major cities in the world, but uh, we'll, we'll, we'll keep, forgive him for that. So, all right, I hope you have your Bibles, Acts chapter 19, and we're going to go through our outline and, uh, and review uh, some of what he just talked about, and then we'll look at some life lessons that we can learn from Acts chapter 19. So we're going to start out by looking at the conflict. One commentator said, wherever Paul went, one of two things happened. Either a revival happened or a riot happened, and sometimes both. And in Ephesus, what happened was both happened. 
As Paul preached the gospel, uh, a revival happened, and many people turned to Christ, so much so that it began to damage the, the business of Diana and the silversmiths selling those little silver statues. You have to remember that uh, the Ephesus uh, culture was defined by the worship of, of this goddess Diana. And you can go to Ephesus today, which is in Turkey, and visit that amphitheater that we're going to look at this morning. And uh, just as like Detroit's known as the Motor City, uh, if you talked about Ephesus, people would have immediately thought about the worship of Diana uh, of the Ephesians or, or Artemis. So uh, the conflict, beginning in verse 23, about that time there arose a great disturbance about the way. That was Christianity. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought a lot of business for the craftsmen there. So he's having like a union meeting here. He calls them together, and along with the workers and the related trades, and here's what he says, you know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. This is how we make our living, he's saying, from selling these silver statues of Diana. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is a danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world will be robbed of her divine majesty. And so here is Demetrius, the, the head of the craftsman who makes these little statues of Diana, of Artemis. And he calls a union meeting together and says, hey, we got, we got somebody that's uh, causing all sorts of havoc here. His name's Paul. He's led many people astray. And, um, you know, we make a good income about this for this business, but it's really not about the money. It's about the name of Artemis. I remember um, listening to sports broadcaster and... Um, author Mitch Album, and he was talking on Sports Talk Radio about pro players that are negotiating contracts with uh, their, their team. And uh, when the pro player says, well, really the issue, it's not about the money. I remember Mitch Album says, whenever you hear somebody say it's not about the money, you know what it's about? The money. <laughs> and that's the case here with with the Demetrius. He's He's really not concerned about Artemis's name. He's concerned about his pocketbook and the pocketbooks of all these craftsmen. And so he has uh, this conflict with, with Paul, and that leads us to the confusion. Verse 28, when they heard this, the craftsmen, the workers, they were furious. They began shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Articus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together, that amphitheater that you saw in the uh, video clip. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. They're, they're concerned about Paul's life. And... Um, what, what's Paul going to do when he's faced with uh, this angry mob that has rushed to the amphitheater? I almost said the Capitol building, but I don't want to get into 
political things there. <laughs> but that's kind of the, the, the mob scene that's, go, that's going on. And, uh, and so here they are. They want to bring Paul. They, they can't find Paul, so they bring his workers. And uh, it says in verse 32, the assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. This I find this fascinating, last part of verse 32. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. <laughs> Most of the people there, they just got caught up in this mob that's angry and rushing to the amphitheater, and uh, they join in. I don't know how many people were there. Like I said, it's at 24,000. There are, there are a lot of people there. And so that's the, the conflict and the confusion. And let's look at uh, the chanting. This was pointed out in, in the video, verses 33 and 34. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front, and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people, but when they realized he was a Jew, so apparently there's some anti-Semitism going on here. Alexander wants to speak to the crowd, and uh, uh, the people there are not uh, highly, the Jews are not highly thought of, and so when they find out Alexander's a Jew, they don't want to listen to him. Listen to what they do. They shouted in unison for about two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Can you picture that in your mind's eye? Thousands of people in an angry uproar and they're in this amphitheater, and for two hours long, they chant, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Well, someone steps forward to try to bring order to this uh, angry mob and angry crowd, and it's the city clerk. And it's interesting that God can use um, anybody to for his purposes, and he uses the city clerk, probably was an unbeliever, but God uses the city clerk to calm the crowd. Let's look at it beginning in verse 35, and we'll read through the rest of the chapter. The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, Fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and her image? Um, this, this temple of Diana was a great, great temple. It was one of the seven wonders of the world back then. It had about 120 pillars. It was longer than a football field. People came from all over the world to see this uh, this temple. So the city clerk uh, says, uh, everybody knows about um, the temple of the great Artemis and of her image which fell from heaven. That was a, a legend that was around that day. Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. Uh, this isn't going to be solved here. You can take this through the court system if you want to. Verse 39, if there is anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. Here's this key phrase that really quieted the crowd and turned things around. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of what happened today. So one of the big things in the Roman Empire was Pax Romana. 
and you could have self-rule in your region, but if there was trouble, if there was um, rioting and difficult things going on, then guess who's going to get involved? The Roman Empire is going to get involved, and uh, the heavy hand of Rome is going to come hard on these people. And so the city clerk says, hey, we're in danger of getting Rome's attention, and they're going to send some more reinforcements here, possibly, if we don't uh, quiet down. In that case, we would not be able to account for the commotion since there's no reason for it. After he had said this, he dismissed the assembly. So after two hours of shouting, great is Diana the Ephesians, of, uh, the city clerk finally gets their attention says you're in danger of uh, getting Rome involved, and it diffuses the situation, and the people file out of the amphitheater, and uh, Gaius and Articus are uh, rescued, and the Apostle Paul is kept safe. Well, let's look at the conclusion of the story, and it really goes over to Acts chapter 20, verse 1. And I like how this ends. Dr. Luke writes, When the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples and after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. So I don't know where Paul is during all this, but he wisely doesn't make an appearance before the the mob, the crowd. When it finally gets calmed down and settled, he wants to talk to the disciples, the followers of Jesus there. And he meets with them. He encourages them. And then Paul moves on to his next place, his next assignment, as he continues his missionary journey. Well, that's chapter 19 of of the book of Acts. And uh, as the commentator said, wherever Paul went, it was revival or riot or both. And in Ephesus, it was both. Uh, Paul spent three years there, and a church developed there. And later on, as was pointed out, he, he wrote an epistle, uh, the book of Ephesians to those uh, those believers there. Well, this morning we want to take about ten or fifteen minutes and look at uh, three life lessons from Acts chapter nineteen. So, what what are some application truths? What can we learn from this this passage that will um, touch our lives this morning? And here's the first one, and I think it's a key one. It's very simple. Uh, this truth: everyone is a worshiper. Every person on the planet is a worshiper. So who did the Ephesians worship? They worshiped the fertility goddess, Diana. So the question is not, are you a worshiper? But the question for every person is, who or what do you worship? Worship is about value. What do we, what do we hold as First place in our life. What is most important to us? That's what we worship. Uh, author Louis Giglio defined worship with this phrase. Worship is our response to whatever we value most in our life. Worship is our response to whatever we value most in our life. And for the Ephesians and those craftsmen in Ephesus, what they valued was their pocketbook and what they valued was the Selling of those idols to Artemis. Everyone is a worshiper. Years ago, um, when we were ministering in, in Chelsea, and uh, we lived right in town, and uh, houses close together, and uh, the neighbor behind us, um, there was a, a rental in the back of their house, and uh, 
our boys got to know a very nice African-American young man by the name of Robert. Robert was a very interesting fellow. Uh, he was probably in his early 20s. And what we began to notice about Robert was that uh, Robert had this beautiful car. This is a long time ago. I can't remember the, the, the make of the car, but I remember being impressed with the, the kind of car that he drove. And what we noticed about Robert was every day, and when I say every day, I remember, I mean every day, we'd look out uh, the back window, and you know what Robert was doing? He was washing, waxing, and polishing that car every day, and he would spend an hour and a half to two hours on the car every day. Now, I'm not saying only God knows our hearts. I'm not saying Robert was worshiping his car. What I'm saying is it obviously was a very, very high value in his mind. He valued that, that car, and he spent a lot of time every day on his car. Andrew Sullivan, um, not a believer, and New York Magazine writes, everyone has a religion. It is, in fact, impossible not to have a religion if you are a human being. It is in our DNA and has expressed itself in every culture and every age. Ecclesiastes says, God has put eternity in our hearts. That's why the Ethnos 360 missionaries who focus on unreached tribes in the farthest places on the planet, whenever they go and go into a tribe that has probably had no contact with any um, white person or American culture of any kind, they find out that they are worshipers. They somehow have some value system, and they've come up with ideas of how the world began, and they worship someone or something. It's usually nature. And Ethnos 360 comes in and translates God's word into their language and begins to start from creation and go to Christ and teach them, let me tell you, you're worshiping the creation and let me introduce you to the creator. And his name is Jesus. And so every person is a worshiper. In our American culture, our worship becomes much more sophisticated, the things that we value the most. Um, for some, it could be um, sports, uh, Super Bowl Sunday. Nothing wrong with Super Bowl Sunday. I love sports. I'll, I'll be watching the game tonight. But for many, it's become an idol. 68 million Americans will bet $23 billion on the Super Bowl today. Um, sports, it could be pleasure. Uh, many people worship pleasure, and they don't believe in the afterlife, and so their mantra is, eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow we're going to die. We're only going to around once in this world, and so grab all the gusto you can. That's called hedonism. And so people worship pleasure. It could be our work. It could be our family. Uh, we need to love our families intensely, but... God demands first place in our life. And so um, it, it could be the human body. It could be hobbies. Uh, whatever, whatever it is, every, everybody is a worshiper. And so the question is not uh, do we worship. It's a question of who or what do we worship. 
And for those of us that know Jesus, uh, what does God say? You shall have no other gods before me. I want you to love the Lord your God. What's the greatest commandment? Matthew 23, uh, Jesus says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The Bible says he's a jealous God, and he demands first place in our life. Well, let's look at uh, the second life lesson, and the second one is this. Many in our world today have misplaced passions, and so this is really related to the, to the first issue of everyone's a worshiper, and what happens? We, we misplace our passions in the wrong areas. Uh, for those in Ephesus, it was two hours of chanting to the, the great goddess Artemis of the Ephesians. God created us to have passions and to be passionate, but many people misplace their passions, even religious people. And Paul talks about the Jews in Romans chapter 10, uh, verses 1 through 3. He writes, Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to the God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. Paul had a great burden for the Jewish people. He was, he was a Jew himself. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God. But their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness of God, they sought to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. So Paul says, the Jews are zealous. They're very, very religious. They had uh, 613 do's and don'ts that they added to the law to make sure that they didn't break the law. And Paul says they have great zeal, but they don't know the Savior. They don't know Jesus. There are many people like that today. Zealous. Jehovah's Witnesses are certainly zealous, aren't they? They're come knocking at your door, door to door. The Mormons, everybody takes a two-year missionary trip. If you're a Mormon, they're zealous as they don't have the truth, the knowledge of true salvation. And so many people today have misplaced passions, and that's certainly the life story of the Apostle Paul. <laughs> when he writes his autobiographical section, uh, talk about misplaced passions, he writes in Philippians 3, if anyone, if someone else thinks they have reasons to have confidence in the flesh, in themselves, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, I was of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church. Paul was zealous. He just didn't know the truth until he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. And so Gordon Dahl says most Americans worship their work, work at their play and play at their worship. Many people in our world today have misplaced passions. Well, the last one uh, this morning, and it's from Acts chapter 20, verse 1, that concluding section of the uh, we spilled over into chapter 20, where it reads, when the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. Uh, here's our third life lesson. We all need encouragers in our lives. Every one of us needs encouragers in our life. And uh, I've said this dozens and dozens of times, but in um, my 42 years of being a pastor, I've never had anybody make an appointment, come into my office and say, Pastor, I'm way too encouraged this morning. I just can't take it. Everybody, 
everybody needs encouragement. And so that's part of our job. We're here, yes, we're here to worship God uh, and learn about him, but we're also here to encourage one another. And so we all need encouragement in our lives. The word literally means to pour courage into. In Hebrews 3.13, the author of Hebrews says, Encourage one another daily as you see the day approaching. Ah, this is to be a regular practice in our life. So we all need encouragers, and we all need to be encouragers to other people. So how can we do that? I made a list of six ways, practical ways, um, just in our context here. Number one, your presence. Uh, you just being here this morning, and by being here saying that uh, worship, fellowship is important, it's a high priority, is a great encouragement. Just showing up is an encouragement. Number two, our words. Proverbs says death and life are in the power of words. You can destroy someone with your words, or you can, as Ephesians 4 says, we're supposed to what? Exclusively build each other up. You're supposed to encourage one another with our words. And the way we can do that is by getting to know somebody and getting to know where they're at in their life, and then uh, we can better know how to encourage them in, in their struggles. Uh, death and life are in the power of the tongue. And guess what? Our words cost us nothing. There's no, we're not like, there's no financial layout here. It's just, it's just using our words to encourage one another. Uh, that can be also written encouragement. A little note. Or text. And uh, most people don't write notes today, but some people still do. And the good thing about a written note is that, uh, and I've done this many times, you put it on your desk or somewhere in the kitchen or on the refrigerator, you can read it over and over and over again. And uh, believe me, one encouraging note is good for about three to six months, at least in my in my world. Uh, presence, your words. How about um, my, my pastor that I first worked with in Ohio, um, this is a long story, but um, when I first got to the church out of seminary, I was very anxious to like get into ministry, and he says to me, we're going to introduce you to hand theology. I'm like, hand theology? What's hand theology? Well, he had me out working in the church yard for the first week or two, and I don't know what, and I was thinking, I went to seminary to do this? <laughs> Uh, but simply to say, uh, encouragement, uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 4 says two are better than one. And sometimes um, in, we're doing a project or we just need a helping hand. And to get just one or two other people to come along and, and help is a huge in, encouragement. How about the encouragement of finances? That was, that was Barnabas, who his name was Joseph. They gave him a name Barnabas, which means encourager. And he sells a piece of land and brings it to the apostles and Here's the money, give it to anybody who has need. And uh, boy, if you've ever been on this end and had a need and, and uh, somebody stepped forward, whether uh, right out front or anonymously, and meets that need, uh, what an encouragement that is. And you know who gets blessed most from that is the person that gives. Jesus said, and we'll see this next week or soon, in Acts, in Acts chapter 20, it's more blessed to give than to receive how about the encouragement of sharing God's truth and God's promises and God's word? First Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, talking about those that have died and talking about the rapture and that uh, for the Christian, the grave is not the end. 
And there's hope, and there's going to be a reunion. And then Paul says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. And if Diane and I have over the years stood by five gravesides of our parents, my mom died young, and my dad remarried, and um, my stepmom just passed away in the last year. And uh, five gravesides, and um, yes, there's sorrow, but we leave there with encouragement because we know that we are going to see them again someday. And that can be a great encouragement. Lastly, of those, number six is, um, here's a great encouragement, prayer. Prayer. The words, I am, how many are, I am praying for you, five words. Not just said glibly, and, I, and I've, had to, I've had to repent of this sometimes in my life because I get a lot of prayer requests, and sometimes I can glibly say, I'll be praying about that, and uh, if I don't write it down and intentionally do it, I, I sometimes forget, and I'm getting, that's why I, I get a prayer request sometimes after the service, I'm saying, I'm going to go write that down, I do it immediately. Uh, but, but for somebody that says, I'm praying for you, and will actually do it, and to know that they are praying for you is a huge, huge encouragement in our life. Well, three life lessons. Uh, everyone is a worshiper, and uh, I don't know who who's first place in your life, what you value most, but God desires that, uh, and he's a very jealous God. And sometimes he brings circumstances in our lives to, to, to take away those things that we hold on to too closely because he wants to get our attention. Many people have misplaced passion. I hope you have a passion to know God, to love him. And then we all need encouragement. Thank you for being here this morning and being an encouragement to me. And uh, let's keep on encouraging one another. We're going we're gonna to pray. And then uh, we're going to sing a song uh, that's a great song. And it's a song of worship. The words are going to be on the screen. And we're going to sing along with uh, a group that's already singing this song. But it's from Psalm chapter 42. And uh, let me just read those verses before I pray. Psalm 42, here's what the psalmist writes. As the deer pants for streams of water, my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night, while people say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. Why, my soul, am I downcast? Why am I so disturbed within me? Here's the key. Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. And so about 40 years ago, somebody wrote a great chorus based on Psalm 42, as the deer pants for water, so my soul pants for you. And um, we're going to sing it after I pray, and we'll just uh, worship the Lord together. Lord, thank you that we can be here this morning. Uh, Thank you for the boldness and the courage of the Apostle Paul, who uh, went everywhere that you called him to uh, share the good news. And sometimes he ended up in jail, and sometimes he got beaten and left for dead, and sometimes he was able to escape at night from those that were out to uh, do him harm. Thank you for your hand of protection on him. Lord, I just pray this morning that uh, you would help us to lay aside everything that's um, uh, on our plate right now. 
um, all all that uh, we're struggling with, all the stresses of life. And uh, Lord, in the next just four or five minutes, may we sing to you, may we worship you, may we let you know that uh, you are first place in our life. And so um, we pray that uh, you will be the audience of one as we worship you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.